Well, I was talking with um, Bob Debenport, who was the chairman of the committee, when I came here, and I said, Bob, you know, 25 years ago, you and I were married to younger women. I don't know what happened to them. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for your kindness and for allowing us to serve here. Steve asked me back sometime, and I don't have a clue as to what we're doing uh, in regards to this. It makes me very uncomfortable. But uh, Steve, um, I, you know, serving with Steve is such a blessing to me, and I totally trust him. And I said, you're not going to embarrass me. He said, you're going to have a good time. So I, I took that at face value. I'm not sure what that means. But he said, uh, what do you want to do on Sunday morning? And I said, oh, the only thing I know to do is to preach. Uh, I don't think you came for anything else. You want to hear from the Lord. And uh, so that's what I hope to do today. So we are simply going to continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. We have come to the second beatitude, and you recall that in all the beatitudes, Jesus begins with the word, blessed, or that is translated in some Bibles, happy. Well, let me ask you, what is it that makes you happy? And that's probably an age-related question. For instance, I remember when I was a child, probably one of the happiest, happiest days in my life was when I received my first bicycle. It was red. It gave me freedom that I never knew. I could go anywhere in the world on that bicycle as long as I was home by dark. But that was a happy day for me. And then, you know, you get older and you become a teenager. Well, what is it that makes you happy as a teenager? Well, if you pass your test and they have a test and you pass it, or, or if your face is clear, that's a pretty good day. Uh, if you get a date, that's a good time. That makes you happy. And then you become a young adult. And the thing that makes you happy is to climb another rung in the, in the corporate ladder. And I'm on my way up. I worked for a television station in Texas, and uh, three times in about a period of four months, there were other stations that contacted me asking me to come to work for them. And each time they offered me more money than I was making, and I would go into my boss and said, I have this offer to do this. And, and uh, so he would come back and, and uh, offer to match what they were offering me, and so I stayed. That happened. The third time I went in within that period of time, I told him that I had an offer to go to work for a station in Oklahoma City, and I remember my boss's name was Tom Crane, and Tom said to me, Wendell, I don't know how we're going to get along without you, but we're going to find out. <laughs> and that's the way that I ended up going to Oklahoma City. But those are the things that make, and then you become a senior adult. And did you know that the senior adult years are just as challenging, just as confusing as the teenage years? In fact, Phyllis Diller wrote, Maybe it's true that life begins at 50, but everything else starts to wear out, fall out, or spread out. <laughs> Billy Crystal said, By the time a man is wise enough to watch his step, he's too old to go anywhere. So what is it that makes you happy? We're going to look at that second beatitude this morning. Matthew chapter 5, our focus is going to be on verse number 4, but let's begin in verse number 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, 
his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. William Barclay wrote, The Greek word for to mourn used here is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is the word which is used for mourning for the dead, for the passionate lament for one who was loved. Now, all of us experience those times of sorrow in our life. We all experience those times of mourning in our life. But I think it's possible to take all sorrow and put it in three categories. First of all, there is a natural sorrow. There are some things for which it is natural to sorrow. For instance, the death of a loved one. The Bible tells us that when Sarah, the wife of Abraham, died, that he mourned. The Scripture says, And Sarah died in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So that is natural. His wife had died, and it was natural that he weep for her. Now, when Absalom, the son of David, died, David wept for his son. The Bible says in Second Samuel, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. So it is natural to weep over the death of a child. And then the Bible tells us that when Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, died, that Jesus wept. Now, that's a natural thing. When death comes, it is natural that we mourn. But the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, and that is a euphemism for someone who has died that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, you will notice he did not say that we do not grieve when our loved ones die. He simply said that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So it is natural then that we groan, that we mourn when there is death. Another time when it is natural to mourn is when there is a divorce in a family. And certainly the husband and the wife mourn. They are sorrowful because their dreams have died. And then if there are children that are involved, they mourn because their family has been torn apart. And then other family members, the mothers and the fathers and so forth, they also weep because that is normal. That is natural. That is a natural response in sorrow. It is also natural to mourn, to sorrow over loneliness, and David speaks of that. He said, my tears have been my food day and night. And we know that there are people who are lonely, and it's natural for that to be a sorrowful time in a person's life. I am aware that during the holiday season, oftentimes that's not a time of celebration for some people. That is a time of loneliness. That is a time of sorrow for people. It is natural for us to sorrow over those people who are hurting. Abraham Lincoln wrote, I am sorry for the man who cannot feel the whip when it is laid on the other man's back. 
So when we're talking about sorrow, we're talking about mourning here, there is a natural sorrow. It is natural that we are sorrowful when there is a death, when there is a divorce, when there's loneliness and so forth. It is natural for us to sorrow. But the second category is that an improper sorrow. So there is a natural sorrow, then there is an improper sorrow. Well, what would that be? Well, that would be a sorrow brought about by unsatisfied lust. Now, that was true of Amnon, who was David's son. Amnon had an unfulfilled lust for his sister. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 2, And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. So here is Amnon, who is attracted to his sister, and because his lust was unfulfilled at this point, because his lust was unfulfilled, the Bible says that it made him sick. He was ill as a result of it. Another example of unsatisfied lust would be concerning Ahab. Because Ahab wanted to purchase Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth said, I'm not going to allow you to have my family's inheritance. And the Bible says that as a result of that, that Ahab went inside, that he, that he turned his face and he pouted as a result of it because his lust was unsatisfied. Folks, there are probably, truthfully, there are probably some of you who uh, mourn over unsatisfied lust in your life. Perhaps not that kind, but I didn't get that job that I wanted. Someone else got it. Or I didn't get the promotion I think that I was deserving. Or I didn't receive the recognition. And so you are sorrowful as a result of an unsatisfied lust in your life. When that happens, then we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. See, that was true with Job. Now, we all know about the suffering of Job and... And uh, he went through a great time of suffering and sorrow in his life. But then Job began to feel sorry for himself. And the Bible says in Job 3, verse 11, Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? You see, Job was so sorrowful at this point, and he began to feel sorry for himself, and, and I think that I probably would have too. But he says, Why was I ever born? I mean, why did God send me into this world? Why was I ever born? I wish I would have died at the point of birth. He felt sorry for himself. So did Elijah. Elijah came to a time in his life when he had decided he was the only one serving the Lord. Nobody else was serving the Lord. He was the only one faithful to God. He was the only one serving and then we see him under the juniper tree hosting a pity party for himself, feeling sorry for himself. First Kings chapter 19, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. Do you see the way that works? When we have an unsatisfied lust in our life, we begin to feel sorry for ourselves, and we see both with Job and also with Elijah, these two great men of God, that they even came to the place that they said it would have been better had I died. 
I would be better off dead because they were feeling sorry for themselves. And folks, some of you possibly feel like, well, you know, life has not treated me fairly. I, I, things have not worked out for me. Life has not treated me fairly. Here is the danger of that is that our lust, whatever it happens to be, is or our desire is not satisfied, we begin to feel sorry for ourselves and then we give up as a result of it. So there is a natural sorrow when there is death, when there's divorce, things of that nature. There is a natural sorrow. Then there is an improper sorrow, but then there is a godly sorrow. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, the sorrow that is according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, you, I want you to read that later, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10. Now, Albert Barnes, commenting on our Beatitude, wrote... This is capable, this beatitude, this is capable of two meanings. Blessed are those who mourn. Either that those are blessed who are afflicted with the loss of friends or possessions. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That I am blessed as a result of losing friends or possessions. That doesn't make any sense. He says, or that they who mourn over sin are blessed. That's it. Blessed are they who mourn. About what? About sin in their lives. That's what Jesus is speaking of. Blessed are those who sorrow. Blessed are those who mourn over sin in their life. Let me show you how this works. Look at verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that is the intellectual part of dealing with sin. I recognize my spiritual poverty. Now, I told you last week that there are two words in the Bible for poor. One of them speaks of someone who just barely gets by, who just lives from check to check, just lives from day to day, from meal to meal, but just barely gets by. The other word, the word that is used there, speaks of a beggar. It means to crouch. It speaks of a beggar who is not even capable of meeting his own needs. He is begging for something from the hand of someone else. And that's the word that Jesus used. So this is the person who recognizes their spiritual condition, that I am a spiritual beggar. See, that's the intellectual part. I recognize that I am a spiritual beggar. That is my condition spiritually. Now you see the emotional part in verse number 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see how these, and I told you whenever we began last week, that the Beatitudes are progressive, each one builds on the next. So the way that it works is Jesus begins here. He is speaking about the intellectual part that I recognize my spiritual condition. I am a spiritual beggar as a result of that recognition. Now then, I mourn over my condition. I can show you this also concerning David and Davidson. You know about David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He went about business as usual. 
Nathan the prophet then came to David to point out his sin. He told him the little story about a, a man who had uh, a little ewe lamb and, and, uh, and uh, the, the king had a whole lot of sheep and he had guests and so the king was going to feed his guest and so he came down and took the one little ewe lamb of this guy and, uh, and fed that to his guest when he had all of these others. Then Nathan said to David, David said, that man ought to die. He ought to suffer for what he's done. And Nathan said, David, you're that man. You're that man. And that was the intellectual part, see. That was a, an awareness. David became aware at that point of his sin, of his spiritual poverty, that he was a spiritual beggar, that he was the one who had done that. He was at fault. That's the intellectual part. Now then, he responds to it in Psalm chapter 51. And that's when he goes to the Lord in repentance. He's pouring out his heart to the Lord. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Do you see how it works with sin? I am aware of my spiritual condition. I'm a spiritual beggar. I have sinned. And then I respond to that. Barclay wrote, the thing which really changes men is when they suddenly come up against something which opens their eyes to what sin is and to what sin does. That was what Jesus wanted you to understand concerning this what sin is, and what sin does. There's the sorrow of mourning, and then there's the comfort of sorrow. Verse 4 again, Blessed are those who mourn. Here's the promise, for they shall be comforted. Now, happiness does not come from the mourning. That's a catharsis. You can mourn over your sin, but that does not bring happiness. Happiness comes, comfort comes, when we repent of our sin. When we deal correctly with our sin and then God's response to that. You see, repentance precedes comfort. And there are many people who are not comforted in their sin because they do not deal with their sin correctly. There are those who do not deal with sin correctly. Instead, they deny their sin. That was the Pharisees. They denied their sin. There are people today who will not even use the word sin because that's too harsh. That indicates that I am an evil person or something. So they don't even use the word sin. We use euphemisms for sin, but all of it is a part of denial. There are those who deny it. There are those who do not repent of sin. Instead, they turn over a new leaf. In other words, I'm going to straighten out on my own. There are those who don't repent of sin. Instead, they despair because of their sin. That's what Judas did. The Bible says in, in Matthew 27, and he, speaking of Judas, threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Now, he did not deal correctly with his sin, obviously. So there are those people who deny it. There are people who turn over a new leaf, people who despair. To be comforted, folks, we have to deal with sin the right way. And I think the best story in the Bible about dealing with sin correctly is the story of the prodigal son. He admitted he said he didn't deny it. He did not deny his sin. 
He didn't blame others for his sin, for what he had done. He didn't say, well, you know, my dad didn't understand me. And, I mean, I was, uh, I was having to take care of everything around the house. And, and my, uh, you know, I, he, he didn't say that. He didn't blame it on his parents. He didn't blame it on his friends in the far country who took advantage of him. He didn't try to rationalize his sin. He didn't say there are other people who are far worse than I, but he confessed it. Now, I'm I'm talking to you about dealing with sin in your life. And the prodigal confessed his sin in Luke chapter 15, verse 18. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. You see, that's the way we deal with sin, ladies and gentlemen. We don't deny it. We don't blame someone else for it. We don't rationalize it, but instead we confess it. I will get up, I will arise, and I will go to my Father and say to Him, I have sinned, and I am not worthy. So if you're going to be comforted of sin, then it comes through repentance. Repentance precedes the comfort. As a matter of fact, repentance produces comfort. Do you want to be comforted in your sin? Well, you have to deal with it correctly. Jesus said, they will be comforted. And again, the word they that is used there is emphatic, which means they and they alone are comforted. Who's going to be comforted? Those who deal correctly with their sin. Barnes wrote those that grieve over sin, that sorrow that they have committed it, and are afflicted and wounded that they have offended God, shall find comfort in the gospel. Okay? He says here, Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Who comforts? Who is it who comforts us when we deal with sin according to the Scripture? Well, Jesus comforts. In John chapter 14, verse 16, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter. All right, so Jesus then is implying that he is the comforter. He says he will give you another comforter, implying that he comforts. So Jesus comforts us. The other comforter is the Holy Spirit. So who comforts us when we deal correctly with sin? Jesus does. The Holy Spirit does. Scripture does. Do you want to be comforted? Then you go to the Word of God because it tells us about His love. It tells us about His forgiveness. It tells us about His hope. It tells us about His provision. So we find comfort then in the Word of God. You know who else comforts us? God's people. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 6, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Titus then came to Paul at Macedonia, and he says that when he came, he comforted me. As a church, it's so easy sometimes for us to throw stones at each other when we are supposed to be comforting each other. And haven't you been comforted by the people of God in your life? Those times in your life when God's people have comforted you? I've told you before, but... It's written in my mind, and when my father died, I remember the funeral. I remember being there and so forth. It was a long time ago, but I remember being there. I do not remember one song that was sung, and I do not remember what the preacher preached about. 
but I remember those people who were there. You see, we comfort. That's what we do. We are to comfort each other. The people of God are to comfort. So who comforts? Well, Jesus comforts. The Holy Spirit comforts. The Word of God comforts. The people of God comfort. So the comfort of sorrow is preceded by repentance and produced by repentance. Well, how do we become a mourner? Blessed are they who mourn. How do you become a mourner? First of all, eliminate things that harden your heart. Eliminate every ungodly activity in your life because they will harden your heart against God and make you insensitive to sin. You know, one of the burdens that I have, um, and I know that it's so prevalent today, but one of the burdens that I have when I sit up here and stand up here on Sunday, I don't know who... In order, I want to. But I know, guys, there's some of you who are involved in pornography on your computer and all that. And it'll destroy you. I'm scared to death of it. I mean, uh, if something popped up on my screen, it would scare me to death because I'm, you know, I'm subject to, to anything. I'm a guy just like everybody else, you know, like y'all are. But it will destroy you. So you eliminate any, whatever it is in your life. That's an ungodly activity. You eliminate it. You eliminate unwise pride. Sometimes we get to thinking, well, you know, my, my sin's not all that bad. You know how bad your sin is? My sin is? It is so bad that Jesus died for it. That's how bad our sin is. We eliminate presumption. Some of us are Christians. We are believers. But we are secure in Christ, and I believe that with all my heart. And so... In presumption, we think, oh, I can do whatever I want to because I'm okay. Eliminate procrastination because the longer you keep your sin, the more comfortable you will become with it. Eliminate things that harden your heart. Repent of every sin. David's heart had become hardened, obviously, to the Lord. But then he repented and his, his heart was tender again. As he prayed there in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy. Of thy salvation. There's some of you who'd love to have the joy back. Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Peter denied Jesus, but then he repented. Pray for a tender heart. Ask God to give you a tender heart. Let me conclude. Asking you a question Are you a mourner? Well, how do you know? Are you sensitive to sin? Are you sensitive to your sin? Do you laugh about it? Tolerate it? Rationalize it? Or do you mourn over it? Are you sensitive to sin in your life? Or are you sensitive to sin in the world? Because Jesus wept over it. What do you do? One who mourns over sin is promised the peace of God's forgiveness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That person who understands they are spiritual beggars. Blessed are those who mourn. And then that person mourns over it. What happens? They shall be comforted. You want to be comforted? 
then you deal with sin. Because repentance precedes comfort and repentance produces comfort. So you deal with your sin. Our Father, I pray that as we come to a time of invitation that we will be honest with our own lives and our own sin. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction of sin, that we will understand the seriousness of it. Today we might deal with it correctly, that we might receive comfort. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. In just a moment we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. Friend, if you're here without Jesus Christ as Savior, the greatest thing you can do is commit your life to Him. If you are a Christian and you've allowed sin to come into your life, today get it right with Him. Just get it right with God. He'll comfort you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. Stand with me, please, as we stand and sing, You Come, I'll greet you as you do.